Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. As Pastor Killingsworth said, there's, there is today the uh, celebration of the Reformation, the annual uh, remembering of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. This is the 501st year. And I found an article that had been written by someone that I'm going to use a little bit as I begin because I wanted to orient us to something, so one particular thing in the Reformation that came from the Reformation. And so, <clears throat> you all, <clears throat> excuse me, you've all heard the phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. You use that, you say that a lot to one another, <laughs> right? How about this? The church reformed, always reforming. Have you heard that? Yes, you probably have heard that. Well, this article is about the origin of that phrase. The phrase was um, originated, as far as we can tell, by a man named Jadokus van Lodenstein. And he was in the Netherlands in the 1600s, about a hundred years and some change after Martin Luther and after John Calvin. And so uh, van, van Lodenstein's pastorate was made possible by work that John Calvin did by sending men from Geneva to plant churches and to evangelize in that region. And if you remember, when Calvin would send men a hundred years prior to this man, many of them died. They were killed. They were martyred. And so through the, the spilling of their blood and the, the planting of those seeds of, of life and faith into the soil around those regions up grew an incredible grouping of churches and fellowship of churches. And it was that group of people and that context that, that you have the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and what's called the Canons of Dort, which we actually this morning read or recited or confessed using the Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism as we do occasionally in our services. And so that gives you a little context. So the phrase, the church reformed always reforming, originated with Jadokus van Lodenstein in, a, in the 1600s. That's the earliest reference we have to it. And so at that time, the, at his time, the, the, the reformed church was really getting it together. And so they wanted to make sure they had things right when it came to doctrine and when it came to worship and when it came to the, the polity, the government of the church. They, they really worked hard on those things and for a lot of years. And by the time this guy comes along 130 years after Calvin, by the time he's in the pastorate, they've got things codified pretty good. They've got things together pretty good with those issues. And so they wanted to make sure those things were done right, and so they, they worked hard at it. And so when you hear the phrase, uh, the church reformed, always reforming, what does always reforming mean? Because at his time, I think he thought, well, we've got the thing pretty much reformed now. 
When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to worship, when it comes to the polity and the government of the church, we've got things pretty much taken care of. And he believed that they did. And pretty much those things had been fought through. I mean, there are little things. They talked about whether or not organs should be in worship. But when he talked about the church reformed, always reforming, he wasn't saying always reforming to deal with whether or not it's okay to have a five-string bass. Is there such a thing as a five-string? That's a thing they were thinking about. I mean, they had arguments about music. They had discussions about organs in his time, in his lifetime. But that's not what they were thinking about. What did they mean when they said the church was always reforming? It wasn't that it was dealing with these issues of doctrine and of worship and of polity. The reformers had that settled. The great concern of ministers like Lodenstein was not the externals of religion, as important as they were, but rather the internal side of religion. The great need was for ministers to lead the people in the true religion of the heart. Jesus had warned against the Pharisees of his day, citing the prophet Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The part of religion that always needs reforming is the human heart. It is vital religion and true faith that must be constantly cultivated. Formalism, indifferentism, and conformism must all be vigorously opposed by a faithful ministry. Jesus was saying of the Pharisees, they know doctrine, they know worship, they know, but their heart, their heart is somewhere else completely. That's the part that's not reformed. That's the part that always needs reforming. And so when they wrote out the canons of Dort, when they got to Article 11, they wrote this, those men, when God carries out his good pleasure in his chosen ones, or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that was uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. They knew that there had to be a constant reform in the heart of God's people, in the hearts of God's people. And this is what he meant by that statement. So now, from now on, I want you to, to have that branded into your brain. The church reformed, always reforming. What's the always reforming part about? It's about you. It's about your heart. It's about me. It's about my heart. It's about the reality of the heart religion in our lives. That's what that's about. It's good that we have good doctrine, that we have good worship. It's good that we have good government and polity. But those things are only good and have any meaning at all if our hearts are toward God, what good was it to be a Pharisee and have no heart toward Christ, no heart toward God? This morning we're going to look at a passage in a few minutes from the book of Jeremiah. 
And Jeremiah is dealing with just such a group of people at the time that he's writing. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask, would you please give to us your Holy Spirit? Would you make him present in us, in our hearts, in my words? Would you make our hearts to be soft, to be open, to be prepared for you? Would you give us your Holy Spirit, please? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the time of Jeremiah, Israel was... um, in servitude to the Babylonians, or they were being attacked by the Babylonians. And it was something that didn't happen uh, outside of God's knowledge. In fact, the Babylonians were pressuring Israel because God had set it up for the Babylonians to, press Israel, pre- to pressure Israel. Israel had sinned, they'd been in sin, and God brought a nation on them to bring them discipline. Discipline. And this is what Jeremiah is saying to them, as he's prophesying to them. He's telling them, okay, you guys, God has sent me. You see this pressure that we're receiving, this outside pressure. There's a reason for this. It's not because you're so wonderful. It's because you've been completely failing God. And so he has sent this discipline on you. And so he, he's telling them, you have to you have to stop continuing in your unrepentance and unbelief. Uh, Babylon at the time was like Las Vegas. You know, you think about Las Vegas and you think about everything that happens in Las Vegas. I've never been to Las Vegas. My sister has to go there for, for these uh, company uh, uh, giant shows where they have tools and stuff for sale. She tells me about Las Vegas. Every time she tells me it's worse than the time she was there before. And I think to myself, I'm not even sure I want a cheap plane flight into Las Vegas so that I can drive to Hoover Dam because I don't want to go into Las Vegas and land and just go through the city to get to Hoover Dam to see that, or the Grand Canyon. I might just have to drive, right? And so that's Las Vegas. Well, that was Babylon. Babylon was like that. They were a people completely, completely out of sync with God, absolutely in rebellion against God. And that's the very people that God used to to bring upon his children, Babylon. Why? Because his children were completely out of sync with him. And because they were just as wicked as Babylon, more so because they had as as their possession and as their inheritance, God's word. They had the testimony of God through the prophets. They had Moses. They had the law. And here they were in in wicked disobedience to the Lord. And so he sends Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, Repent and believe. Submit to this discipline. Don't fight against Babylon. Give yourselves up. And repent of your sin. And ask God to be merciful to you. So he called them to repentance. Because they were so sinful. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, you find that Jeremiah is very graphic and very pointed and, and rough. Uh, Matthew Henry says that, that Jeremiah uh, is a prophet that's set, sent to discover sin, and that, he ought, that, that such a prophet has to lay aside the enticing words of man's wisdom. Plain dealing is best when we're dealing with sinners to bring them to repentance. These were rough people. Uh, 
And God sent a man that was very, very direct to, to deal with these rough people. And so we come to our text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there's no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I will punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. God sends Jeremiah to them and he says, okay, Give them the ultimatum. You know, there's two words, kairos and, and chronos, for time, right? Chronos is a time that is sequential. Uh, but kairos is the time that is the moment that we've all been waiting for. This is the moment of decision. And this is what Jeremiah was sent to say to Israel, this is the time. You're at the Kairos. This is the place. This is the time. And so it's time for you to, to make the decision. He said, stand, see, ask, walk, listen. But the problem wasn't out there. Did they have good doctrine? They had the law. They had Moses. They had God speaking his truth to them through a prophet right there, live, on the spot. Did they have good worship? Did they have good governance? The problem wasn't outside of them. The problem was inside. And so just like the reformers said, we have to always be reforming, they were recognizing this reality in God's people throughout the history of God's people. And this was true now in Israel at the time of Jeremiah. The problem wasn't outside. The problem was the problem of, a heart, of their heart. So he said, stand, see, ask, walk, listen. And they said, we will not walk, and we will not listen. A trumpet is sounding. The alarm is going up. Listen to the alarm. We will not listen. You know, when the, uh, when the tornado warning signs, so, uh, sounds in your neighborhood, so how many of you run for shelter? My goodness, it's going to be a lot of mayhem. It's, how many of you open the back door and watch? Okay. Okay. Well, in this case, it's somewhat similar, only that it has to do with the, their eternal state and God's moving from disciplining them to judging them. And so there they are at this kairos, and the trumpet is blasting, and they're saying, 
We will not listen. In fact, in chapter 18, it says in verse 11 and 12, So now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we're going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. This is God prophesying about what they're going to say. And think about it when they say it's hopeless. They're not saying it in some kind of sad, helpless kind of, oh, I feel so hopeless in my, in my attempt to quit my sin. What they're saying is, it's hopeless. We're not going to change. It's such a proud, arrogant, hard-hearted response to God as he pleads with them before he's going to bring great judgment on them. He tells them they have the, the ability to enter rest. And they say, ah, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. We're going to follow our own plans. We're going to act according to the stubbornness of our own hearts. We won't walk and we won't listen. And we think about this and we think, okay, well, all right, yeah, I, I see what's happening. Oh, well, they're in a city and then they're under siege and it's bad, it's difficult. Cut them some slack. It's a difficult time. They had a difficult choice. They're being harassed. You know, they, they want to fight. And the guy's coming to them and saying, don't fight, repent. Don't fight, repent. It reminded me of David when he was fleeing from Absalom. You guys remember the account of David fleeing from Absalom? Why was David fleeing from Absalom? Because he was being disciplined by God. If you remember that David, when he had sinned in the past, was told that, that a discipline was coming on him and that one day he would flee and that another man would sit on the throne for a while and actually sleep with some of his wives and all these things would happen, and it happened with Absalom. And David is walking out of the city, and he has all of these mighty men with him. And they're mighty men. I mean, they have reputations, monstrous kinds of reputations, right? And they're marching out of the city. They're just getting out of town because there's a huge army coming. They, they know they're not going to be able to. And David is leading them. And I think David's heart is right even at that moment. Because what happens as they're going along, there's this guy named Shimei. He's a Benjamite. He's always hated David because David took over Saul's place and Saul was a Benjamite, right? He's hated David and David's leaving town in shame and disgrace, you know, tail between his legs, so it seems. And David's walking along and Shimei is throwing dirt at them and throwing rocks at them and he's cursing them, which, you know, I have to tell you, had to take a little bravery on Shimei's part, I, I always think to myself, right? Because here you have these guys walking with David who have these reputations, and as they're walking, they turn to David and say, um, why don't I just go cut his head off? What? Okay with you? I'll just go cut his head off. I'm tired. He just hit me with a rock. I'll cut his head off. And, and what does David respond he says, no. Who knows whether God has put the words into his mouth? David is walking out of the city oppressed 
under the, under the discipline of God that he knew was coming, and there it was upon him. And even at that moment, David is saying, no, no, no. This is, this is God. God's in this somehow. He's in this because, you know, I knew this was going to happen. I didn't know this was just exactly how it was going to happen. But God is in this. No, we're not going to be taking anybody's heads today. We're leaving town. And they went out of town. And I think that's why David was a man after God's heart. I think even as he walked, he was repenting. <laughs> he was thinking, yeah, I brought this on myself. I brought this on all of us. I'm walking and I'm repenting. But see, that's David and his response. That's not the Israel of Jeremiah's day. David is walking and he's saying, give me a soft heart, O God. Give me a soft heart. And Israel in Jeremiah's day is saying, we're going to do what we want. We don't care. They had their choices. Walk in the old paths, repent from sin. Have faith in God or walk in other paths and byways that they had been walking in and continue in that, in that uh, direction. And their problem, they said, no, we're not going to do it. And the problem was a problem of their heart. They had their pet sins, just like Babylon. They, were, they loved this world. They loved their idols. They loved their immorality. They loved their drunkenness, their idolatries, their adulteries, their murders. They loved their revilings. They loved all of that stuff. And they said no. And they were wanting the perks of being the people of God, but but not the obedience that is associated with it. They chose their own plans. They received no peace. In fact, Jeremiah 16, 19 says, Hear, O earth, behold, the Lord says, I am bringing disaster on this people. The fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. I am bringing disaster on them. Well, here's the point where, no surprise to you, I say, we are they. Right? This is who we are. This is, these are our hearts. These are our sins. It's not like we're living in the time of Van Lodenstein. We're not in this time that's the apex where they just finished the... The Belgic, the Belgic Confession, and you know, we just did the the Council, the the Synod of Dort, and we didn't, and we're not just at this time when the churches are on the rise and flourishing everywhere, and and the men or pastors are all preaching toward the heart and getting people to turn in their hearts to God. We're not at the time of this great revival, like the time of the Great Awakening, where men would come out of the the coal mines and stand by the thousands and hear the preachers, and as the preachers preached, their faces would turn from black to white as the tears streamed down through the coal dust. We're not at that time. You know, there are uh, uh, waxings and wanings in the life of the church. There are, uh, what is it with tides? Ebbs and crests, I don't know what in the time of the church. When Jeremiah was preaching, they weren't at a high point. It wasn't a good time. We're not living in a high point. We're living in a declension. We're living in a trough in our day. This is what we live in. If you think it's not true, if you think everything's wonderful and, and uh, spicy nice and everything's great, you got, uh, 
You got some colored glasses on, but I don't know what they are. Right? We're at a time where we're walking out of Jerusalem and they're tossing rocks and dust at us at the church. And, and we're at that place where we're saying to ourselves, how am I going to respond? Am I going to revile in like form or am I going to repent and live for God and have faith in him? This is where we live, the time of Jeremiah. A time when plain dealing is best to deal with sinners and bring them to repentance. We are reformed, aren't we? We got some great documents. I can show you. We can print them off. I mean, we'd have to keep the paper going into the copier to print off the documents we've got. And it's good stuff. But I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about our hearts. That's what this is about. The church always reforming. Our hearts before God being renewed, being softened, being made alive. And what the old guys at the time of Van Lodenstein worried about were the three things I, I listed when I was quoting from that article. One was indifferentism, that our beliefs and behavior really don't make any difference. And so what you end up with is universalism of a sort. It's a universalism where we don't confess everybody goes to heaven, but in actuality we just say there is, everybody's going to heaven and, and there isn't really a hell. We're kind of just pragmatic about heaven. Everybody's going there, and there's no hell. Peace, peace. It's a time of peace, peace, but there's not really peace. A recent quote about the church said, there is a studied ambivalence about eternity. The assumption is heaven for all. Heaven for all. We believe we're entitled to imminence Jesus close to me, Jesus grace, everything coming to me. We're entitled to that kind of imminence this way without having the necessity of the very real and, and scary transcendence of who God is. Heaven is certainly to be given to us, but it won't have that uncomfortable Father God in it that we read about. Okay? We just want a, a kind of a a familiar kind of God like Bacchus. Do you guys know who Bacchus was? Okay, Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of uh, fertility, and oddly enough, the god of theater. Right? And so this is how we think about heaven. This is the god that we'll have in heaven, the god of wine, fertility, and theater. It's going to be a wonderful time because it'll be like now. It'll be like now. Maybe there'll be a Cannes Film Festival or a Sundance in heaven. We can, have, we can view films up there and they'll, we'll be able to express our artistic flair in heaven. This is how we see heaven because we don't think about it being any other way. And so this is what we superimpose on it. Interestingly, later images of Bacchus show him as a beardless, sensuous, naked or half-naked, androgynous youth, and the literature describes him as womanly or man-womanish, which really is interesting, isn't it? This present age is not heaven. This present age is not hell. 
Heaven won't be a Sundance film festival, it won't be in a debauch, and it won't be androgynous. If androgyny is sinful here, is it going to be okay in heaven? The God that is illuminates heaven with his glory, providing his redeemed with eternal light and rest from their labors. And the thing about the labors is, how do we know what rests from our labors? How would we know why it's desirable if we don't ever labor? And I'm not talking about work. Lots of us work, we dig, we write, we do whatever work we do. The diggers sweat, the writers sit. We work, but that's not the work we're going to get rest from in heaven. What are our labors here but to fight against sin, to resist against sin? Where's the sin? Well, it's mostly in us. And one day we get to rest from that labor because it will be gone. But only in the presence of God and only in the time when uh, at the consummation of the age we are glorified in his presence. And so we have no true concept of heaven. And of course, we have no concept at all of hell. I don't know what we think hell is. I think for the most part, we don't think about it. The damned will be damned to eternal punishment in the fiery hell. There isn't any Satan with a pitchfork like at the Halloween scare houses. Satan will be there, demons will be there, but they're all equally damned with all of those who refuse to, to acknowledge Jesus Christ. And they will all suffer the same. So where does the, where does the suffering come from if Satan doesn't meet it out? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say this. I have always had the pet theory that God is in hell, not experiencing hell, but present there. And, what I, and why I say that is I can't imagine anything worse for someone who's damned to have to spend eternity in the unmediated presence of God. If anything would burn you, if anything would be unquenchable, wouldn't it be to be present with God with no intercessor? with no reconciler, with no mediator. I don't know if that's true, but hell is every bit, every bit that bad and real. And yet we're indifferent to it. And we just think all there is is heaven. That's all there is to think about, and everybody's going there, and so there's not a place where God unleashes his wrath. But I'm telling you, there is, and you don't want to be there. And you don't want your family there. And you don't want your loved ones there and your neighbors there. And unless we're reformed and reforming, our hearts aren't prepared for the day. They're just not prepared. There's no place for indifference among God's people. The other thing they worried about was conformism. That's worldliness. Conformity with surrounding practices. 
And Jesus says, don't be bound together, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, don't be bound, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and of spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Is this what we do? Or are we just worldly? conforming to what's around us. Can people tell a difference between us and the people next to us? Now, you know, we all think of this verse and we all think, uh, don't marry an unbeliever. Whatever you do, don't marry an unbeliever. And that is true, what that verse says, don't marry an unbeliever. But it doesn't stop with that. It's talking about your whole life, your whole orientation, don't be them. Don't be Babylon. And that's what Jeremiah was saying to those people. Don't be Babylon. God's brought Babylon to discipline you. Don't be them. And that brings me to the third point that they were concerned about, which was formalism. And that speaks to the other two. And formalism is, means that, okay, we're here, we're a part of this, and therefore we're okay. And I think Israel thought that at the time, and I think often we think that. We're here, after all. And remember, we have all those reams of paper that we can print off about our doctrine, and remember that we have the, the knowledge of the church reformed, always reforming. And, and I've, I have a history now of five years in a row remembering the Reformation on this particular week. And I've, and I've got it chronicled, you know, in time. I knew it was 501 this year. Last year was 500. That was, a, that was a big one, right? We can say all those kinds of things, and it doesn't matter if we don't have any fight against sin. If we don't fight against our indifferentism, and if we don't fight against our conformity, if we don't fight the sin that's in our hearts, if we don't have some struggle that we can point to and say, this is a struggle I had today with sin. I was talking to someone recently about my life and, and confessing something to them, and I said, uh, I said, you know how Jesus said we're supposed to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves? I said, I, I find that as I've grown older and older, I've become that wise like that serpent. You're not taking me in. I'm wise like that serpent. But I found out that I'm, I'm really, I've kind of declined in my innocence. I'm not so much the dove anymore. I'm kind of innocent like a serpent. Okay? And it isn't good. And like David would have been a, a serpent in his response to Shimei by saying, yeah, go lop his head off. That's how I think now. I think that way so often as, I'm, as I, the stones are coming and the dirt's coming and the curses are coming, I just think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond in like form. 
wicked. You see? If we're not working on rooting sin out of us, we have something terribly wrong in our hearts. We should be able to look back at a week and say, I, I, was, I was fighting sin right there. I fought sin that day. I fought sin every day. I fought sin. There was the sin I fought. This was it. I failed. I confessed. I had faith in Christ. I fought again. Alive. Hearts alive. Always reforming. Always growing. Always being renewed. I don't know which one of these things hits you most directly. But I have a feeling that we all can cop to some of them, can't we? Do you have faith today? Or have you been saying, hey, it's hopeless. I'm going to follow my own plans and my own stubborn heart. Now you don't use those words maybe, but that's just how you walk along. God says, no, I've sent you my prophet, I've sent you my word, I've sent you my son. I'm still promising you a rest, but you need to walk in the ways that I've put in front of you. You need to have your heart transformed. You need to repent of your sin. You need to humble yourself before me, and I'll still give you life. You need to follow. In Matthew 7, it's Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. And that, that should always sober us. There are many here today. Are there just few here today? It should be sobering to us. But he doesn't promise that as as something empty and, and lifeless and, and separate from joy. He promises that with himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jeremiah was promising Israel. God says, you can have rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Kairos today. This is the day. What road will you take? Will you be always reforming? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be merciful to us. You have said that yourself that you recognize us that we are dust weak pitiable and that you are long suffering with us and we thank you dear heavenly father for that and we pray that as we hear your word and as we see it applied to us and as we understand the dangers that are in front of us that we'll be sobered by it dear lord and that you'd give us your holy spirit to make our hearts alive to make us to be responding to you in obedience. Help us, O oh Lord. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.